you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. We're currently finishing up our short three-week series on prayer, looking at three different aspects of prayer, all of which are very important to the lives of followers of Jesus. In the first week, we talked about the prayer of awe. Every prayer is to be characterized by an incredible sense of awe. The sense of awe in that we, as broken, sinful, and imperfect people, are given the privilege to speak to the God of the universe through prayer. We have this privilege because of what Christ has done on our behalf, not because of anything that we've done to earn this hearing with God, but because of what Christ did for us. And we do this by the guidance of the Holy Spirit that God has given us. The second week, last week, we talked about the prayer of supplication, how God wants his people to make requests. He wants his people to make petitions of him through prayer. And he has the power to address our needs and address our concerns and meet our requests. But as so many of us know all too well, sometimes God doesn't always answer our requests or meet our needs or meet our concerns the way that we see fit or within the time frame that we would like him to answer our prayers. And the only way that we as followers of Jesus can have peace with that is that if we learn to trust that he knows better than we do and that he works all things together for our good, even when it's hard for us to see that. And when we have that trust, every single prayer of supplication that we offer up to God can have the same words that Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus is praying, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Yours be done. Jesus is essentially praying, God, please don't make me go to the cross. And yet Jesus's prayer request wasn't answered. That's where we find our eternal hope. We don't find our eternal hope in every single one of our requests being answered and every single one of our petitions being met. We find our eternal hope in that Jesus's prayer request in Gethsemane wasn't answered and that he went to the cross on our behalf. So our prayers of supplication, even when the needs are great, even when the requests seem so valid and so important when they aren't answered, we can find peace with God because we know that his will is greater than ours. So with that, we enter our third week, finishing up the series. Today, we're going to be looking at the prayer of repentance. Now, repentance is something that we don't often like talking about. Part of that may be because of the culture and the society that we live in today. We don't like the idea that anyone could possibly tell us that we've done something wrong. Who are you to tell me that I have offended God? Who are you to tell me that I am in need of repentance? But it may not just be our culture or our society. It really is indicative of something far more universal. Our rebellion against God, our innate ability to push back on God, to have this desire to disobey God from time to time. We don't often like talking about repentance. And yet Martin Luther says that our Lord and master, Jesus Christ, will the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, the entire life of believers to be marked by repentance. Now, as we view 
repentance as this sobering, depressing, heavy thing. If we view it in that light, we hear Martin Luther's quote and we say, man, I don't want my life to be characterized by repentance. Repentance is depressing. Repentance is upsetting. Why would I possibly want my life to be marked by that? But this morning, I pray that we can discover through Scripture that repentance, even though we may think it is depressing or sorrowful, really is used for our healing. God commands it that we might find peace with him and that we might find joy in spite of our sin. So with that, open your Bible to Psalm 51. We started the sermon series with David in 2 Samuel 7. We're going to end this sermon series with David as well. So Psalm 51, if you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be located on page 405. And if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. But before we get into Psalm 51 or setting up Psalm 51, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Father, we are grateful that you command us to repent. God, we're grateful that you do this for our healing, for our peace, and for our joy. And God, when we hear that word, repent, when we talk about this subject, we're so often tempted to get defensive, so often tempted to just tune everything out because it might make us uncomfortable. But I pray that we would listen to what your word has to say about repentance, that we would learn from David as we see his repentance in Psalm 51. God, thank you that you desire our healing, you desire our peace, you desire our joy. And I pray that you would give us the humility to repent, that our whole lives would be marked by repentance. But God, thank you for this day. Thank you that we can gather here, learn from your word, sing praises to you, take communion. And God, just be in the presence of fellow believers. God, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, that your word would be effective, and that we would honor it, obey it. And God, let it change us from the inside out, day in and day out. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things and do all these things for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. When we talked about David two weeks ago in 2 Samuel 7, David was living large. Things were going great for David. Things couldn't possibly get any better for David. This may have been the highest point of his entire reign as king over Israel. His enemies had been defeated. His kingdom was secure and prosperous. His people were content. His relationship with God was thriving. And in 2 Samuel 7, we saw that God had just given David an incredible promise. He promised David that his house would last forever. He promised David that his offspring would be blessed and that his offspring would have a unique father-son relationship with God himself. And as David hears this promise from God, he's blown away by how he could possibly say enough thank yous to God. He doesn't even know what to say. But then things would change. Even though in 2 Samuel 7, things couldn't possibly get any better for David, it wouldn't always stay at that high point. We get to 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, setting up Psalm 51. So feel free to stay in Psalm 51 in your Bibles. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, we briefly talked about 
2 Samuel 11 back over the summer. We talked about how in this passage, David appears to be in a bit of a rut because spring rolls around and spring is the time when kings go out to war. This is what kings live for. This is their opportunity to enhance their legacy, to expand their borders, to further cement themselves as heroes in their nation's history. And yet David doesn't want to go out to war. He sends Joab instead because David would rather stay home on the couch watching reruns of Boy Meets World instead of going out to war. So what we see here is not David in his typical triumphant bear wrestling, Goliath defeating, street dancing, flute playing, psalm writing self. We see a very different David in this passage, a David that just simply seems to be a little bit apathetic. He just isn't really feeling all that great. Look at 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. So one day David decides to get up off the couch and to walk out on the roof and he sees a woman bathing. Now there's been some debate about why in the world was Bathsheba bathing on the roof? Was she intentionally trying to seduce David or was she really just oblivious to bathing on the roof? Well, regardless of how you view Bathsheba, which we don't really know what her motivation was, the fault lies with David. David let his eyes linger a little bit too long. David sees her. He has her brought to him. After all, he's the king. He can do that. And she can't really do much about it because he's the king. So she comes to David. David sleeps with her, even though she is a married woman. And even though David knew that from the very get go. She can't turn him down. In David's mind, he's probably thinking, well, Bathsheba has the privilege of spending time with me, David, the king. David's probably thinking that he needed some cheering up. So you put it all together and really in David's eyes, eh, no harm done. Innocent fun may be what David is thinking, right? No harm done. Well, look at 2 Samuel 11, verse 5. And the woman conceived... And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Uh Oh, David didn't plan for that. That wasn't exactly what David had in mind. And the question is, what's he going to do now that Bathsheba is pregnant and that Uriah is gone at war? Well, of course, naturally, David attempts to cover his tracks. He has three different things he tries. The first thing he tries is that David would call Uriah back from the battlefield and he would tell Uriah, you know, Uriah, you've been working really hard. You've been fighting the tensity of the battlefield. Why don't you go home and spend some romantic time with Bathsheba? You've earned it. So David is thinking that when Uriah goes home, when Bathsheba starts showing her pregnancy, people won't think anything of it. They'll think, all right, Uriah was able to come home, spend some time with his wife. She got pregnant. Great for them. But Uriah refuses. He didn't think it was appropriate to go home to his wife when all of his fellow Israelites were out fighting. 
So tactic number one for David fails. He tries the same thing again a second time, only this time he gets Uriah drunk. He thinks that maybe if Uriah has a little bit of alcohol in his system, his judgment and his loyalty won't quite be as strong as it was before. But even when Uriah is drunk, he refuses to go spend time with Bathsheba. Now, David's getting desperate at this point. Everything that David has tried so far hasn't worked. So he hatches an even more sinister plot. He arranges for Uriah to be conveniently, accidentally killed in battle. And that's exactly what happens. Joab agrees to set up the death of Uriah. When David hears the response or he hears the news of Uriah's death, look at what he says in 2 Samuel eleven, twenty-five. David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you for the sword devours one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Now, in any other scenario, David might be a little bit frustrated, a little bit upset that one of his soldiers was killed. But this time around, he essentially tells Joab, eh, what are you going to do? Soldiers die in battle. He was such a great man, such a hero. If only thing, he paid his life for his loyalty. Poor, poor Uriah. We should mourn his death. David then decides to take Bathsheba as his wife. If anything, this makes David look like the hero. David, the king, takes in the poor, helpless widow of the fallen soldier. David would now not have to answer questions about why Bathsheba would be pregnant. He would be viewed as a hero and he can just move on like none of this really ever happened. Well, the problem is that David couldn't just move on because we read verse 27 of 2 Samuel 11. The last few words, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David couldn't move on quite the way he thought he would be able to. And we see that in chapter 12. The prophet Nathan comes to David, the one we talked about before, who served the role of speaking to God on behalf of the people and speaking to the people on behalf of God. And David shares, Nathan shares a story with David. He tells David a story about a rich man that had many sheep that meant nothing to him. And yet this rich man intentionally steals the beloved lamb of a poor man, the lamb that was like a member of the family. He steals this one lamb and serves it as a meal to a guest. When Nathan asks David, well, David, what do you think of the story? What do you think we should do to this rich man? David proclaims with conviction and with strength that this rich man must be put to death. For his sins. How could he possibly commit this type of crime against this poor man? And then Nathan proclaims with just as much conviction, David, you are the man. This is what you did. Only you didn't steal someone's lamb. You stole someone's wife. And then you proceeded to have this man killed just so that you wouldn't be found out. Look at David's response in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. What else can David say other than, I have sinned against the Lord? Simple response. It's in this moment that David finds himself at a crossroads in his life. 
He has sinned against God. He sinned against his fellow man. Now, he has some options about how he's going to respond to this. He could get defensive. He could seek to justify why he committed this crime. He could ask the question, well, why was Bathsheba on the rooftop in the first place? He could even have Nathan shut up. But instead, David repents. That's when we get to Psalm 51. We're going to read Psalm 51 right now. And as I read this, I want you to picture David. I want you to picture David on his knees, crying out to God, tears streaming down his face as he shares this prayer. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. We see the classic tenets of repentance in Psalm 51. We see desperate pleas for mercy on David's behalf in verses 1 and 2 and verses 7 through 12. We see complete, open, and honest confession of sin and embracing of guilt in verses 3 through 6. In verses 13 through 15, we see a vow to change, a vow to be different, a promise that this will not happen again. David even goes so far as saying that he's going to teach others that might avoid this sin, that they don't have to learn the hard lesson the way he's learned the hard lesson. Or maybe he could even teach those who have committed this sin to repent themselves. But as great as Psalm 51 is, as heartfelt as it seems to be, as easy as it is for us to look at David and think, oh, poor David, he made such a terrible mistake, but clearly he is so, so sorry. A question remains, what in the world makes David think that God will forgive him? I mean, really? What makes David think that God could possibly forgive him for what he just did? Now, all sins are equal in the sense that all sins lead to punishment. All sins are rebellion against God. All sins cause separation. 
But not all sins lead to the death of a fellow human being created in God's image. Not all sins have the damaging ripple effect on those around us the way David's sin did with Bathsheba. So when you put this all together, what in the world makes David think that God will forgive? What in the world makes David think that he could possibly accept his repentance? Well, David knows that God accepts repentance because of his steadfast love. In verses 1 and 2, David specifically cites, God, accept my repentance because of your steadfast love, because of your mercy. David knows that repentance is not about how sorry we are or how pathetic we make ourselves look. David's repentance and our repentance finds its value in God's steadfast love. Tim Keller writes, if we know we are loved and accepted in spite of our sins, that makes it far easier to admit our faults and flaws. So maybe God will forgive David from his steadfast love. But what makes David think his confession will mean anything? It's not like him confessing is going to bring Uriah back from the dead. It's not like God doesn't know what David had already done. Well, David confesses because he knows that God does not despise a broken and contrite heart. The broken and contrite heart of a person pouring out their sins before God, asking him for mercy. David knows that repentance is not just about doing lip service or just being sorry that we got caught. It's about realizing our own brokenness, realizing our own helplessness and laying it before God and trusting in his mercy. I recently read an article about a man named Henry Garrick. Henry Garrick was a pastor from Missouri in the late 1940s. And Henry Garrick reluctantly agreed to be a chaplain for 15 Nazi war criminals in the Nuremberg trials. And this is what the article says about Henry Garrick and about these war criminals. They walked to the gallows together, pastor and penitent. Each step up took them closer to the fall, the abbreviated fatal fall to come. As the criminal stood above the trap door that moments later would open to rope him into eternity, an officer asked him if he had any final words. I place all my confidence in the lamb who made atonement for my sins, he said. May God have mercy on my soul. Then turning toward the man who had been the shepherd of his soul during his incarceration, the man who had been his confessor, his preacher, and the one from whose hand he had received the body and blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper, he said, I'll see you again. Then noosed, hooded in black, and legs tied, he dropped out of this world into another. Even a Nazi war criminal could come to the conclusion when reading the pages of Scripture that God does not despise a repentant and contrite heart. Confession matters. Repentance is effective, even for the people who we might think are worse than we could possibly imagine. So maybe God will accept David's repentance. Maybe confession still means something. But what makes David think that he can actually change? What makes David think that he'll be any different in the future and that he won't take advantage of his power as king and just pull the same stunt sometime in the future? Next time he sees a beautiful woman. Well, David knows that repentance isn't just about trying harder 
or being better. Repentance fosters a work in our heart that only God can accomplish. Richard Sibbs writes, Repentance is not a little bowing down our heads, but a working our hearts to such a grief as will make sin itself more odious unto us than punishment. Repentance changes our hearts from the inside out. It helps us to learn and helps us to love and reorders our loves that we might love God so much that we could not even bear to think of sinning against him. Not because of the consequences that may come, not because of the punishments that we think we deserve, but because we love God so much that we cannot bear to think of sinning against him. Through this sin, David learns a really hard lesson. But he learns a good lesson. He learns something about God's character that we would all do well to learn this morning. He learns the truth of Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us, and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. David learns that the hard way. We see David repenting in Psalm 51. But David says more about repentance in Psalm 32. Verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 32, David rejoices, saying, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, David can write these words in Psalm 32, not because he has some vague cognitive understanding of forgiveness. David can write these words because he has experienced God's forgiveness. He shares that the only way he could find peace and joy and healing was when he confessed his sin, was when he repented of his sin. Before he repented, he felt an incredible burden and an incredible pressure of holding this sin on his own shoulders. And only when he repented did he finally find relief, did he finally find healing and peace and joy. Because sin in our lives that we are unwilling to confess and unwilling to repent will suck the life out of us. The same way that the summer heat sucks the life out of us. And David says in Psalm 32 that he is grateful for the opportunity to teach others that they might not commit the same sins that he has committed. Now, it all sounds nice that David repented, that God accepted his repentance, that he was forgiven, that he found peace and joy and healing. But there were still consequences to David's sin. The son that Bathsheba conceived would die, even though David prayed for him and fasted for him. David's kingdom would soon be subject to division and betrayal and upheaval. David's reign that was for so long characterized by a roar, his reign would go out with a whimper. But there are still lessons that we can learn 
from David's repentance. We learn from David that we, too, can find forgiveness. But we don't know this because of some vague understanding of God's steadfast love. We know this because of God's steadfast love displayed in the cross. We know that forgiveness for our sins comes from what Christ has done for us. We read passages like 1 John 1, 9, where John writes, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He continues in chapter 2, verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We find eternal hope and eternal joy in that Christ died for our sins. Now, you might be thinking, now, wait a minute, that sounds great, that sounds rosy, but I don't think you really fully understand. My sin is huge. And I would say to you, yeah, you're right. Your sin is huge. Your sin deserves punishment. Your sin deserves condemnation. Your sin deserves separation from God. But David's sin was really huge, too. And so is mine. And so is every single person who's been saved by the grace of God. We are forgiven because of what Christ does for us. He is the sacrifice that takes away wrath, his body being broken and his blood being shed on your behalf and on my behalf. And with that, we have confidence that we can be forgiven and that our repentance is accepted by God. We learn from David that God does not despise a contrite and repentant heart. We learn from David that repentance can lead to peace and joy and healing, and that we don't have to carry that weight on ourselves forever. We learn from David that God can use our mistakes and our sins and our flaws and use us to help others avoid that same sin or to guide them to repentance if it's already been committed. And we learn from David's repentance that we can change, not through simply trying harder or being better or some shallow outward form of behavior modification. But we can change because God is working on our hearts. Now, this morning, I know that I and probably every single person in this room can think of some way that we've fallen short, can think of some sin in our lives that we're struggling with, that we're wrestling with. Now, as we think about that sin or that temptation or that issue, we have options on how we'll respond to it. We can beat ourselves up over it. We can carry the burden on our backs and lash out at the people around us because of the burden that we bear. We can try to cover up our sin. We can try to justify it. We can try and fix it on our own without ever truly confessing it to God. We can feel really sorry for the consequences that we're facing as a result of the sin. But let's not do any of those things. Instead, let's repent. Let's repent because we know that Christ offers forgiveness no matter what we've done. Let's repent because God does not despise the repentance of a broken person. We repent because it is the only way that we can ever have that burden lifted and that we can find peace and joy and healing. We repent that we might use that experience, that hard-learned lesson, to help others avoid the same mistakes that we have. 
And we repent because we know that God will change us. And we know that God can change us. God calls us to repent for our good, for our joy, for our healing, and for his glory. So this morning, as a community of believers, let's all repent of our sin together with confidence, knowing that Christ forgives. Let's pray. Father, repentance is hard. It requires an incredible humility. It requires an incredible swallowing of pride. It requires an incredible vulnerability, a letting down of our defenses. And repentance isn't easy, God. I don't think any of us would pretend to say that repentance is easy. But God, we know that you call us to repentance for our long-term good. That even though repentance is hard in the short term, God, it brings peace in the long term. And so as every single one of us can probably think of some way that we've fallen short, some sin that we wrestle with, some area that we are so desperately in need of improvement, I pray that we won't just resort to covering it up. We won't just resort to justifying it. We won't just resort to trying and fixing it on our own through cold turkey or behavior modification. But God, I pray that we would confess that sin to you. So we would turn it over to you with confidence that your son's blood and your son's broken body is enough to cover that sin. That his cross and his resurrection is sufficient for our forgiveness. God, thank you again for the privilege of prayer that any of us could dare approach you with our sins and lay them before your feet. And to do so with confidence that you forgive. God, thank you for this morning. I pray that those of us who need to repent, every single one of us, I pray that we would just turn that burden over to you, that we would not just let it continue to put pressure on us and weigh on us and suck the life out of us, but that we would turn it over to you with confidence in your forgiveness and move on, be changed, be transformed for our good and for your glory. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As Martin Luther said, the lives of